Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Charisky. This month, we're going to be talking about small remote islands, distant specks of land that are dwarfed by the vast ocean around them. These are really special and important habitats, but why do they exist? And what makes both the islands and their inhabitants so distinctive? As always, we've got a fabulous and varied array of experts to help us explore this topic. I talked to Professor Chris Perry from the University of Exeter about island formation and how these islands are actively growing and rebuilding themselves. Professor Carl Jones from the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust is on hand to tell us how plants and animals colonise these habitats over the centuries. And finally, I had the honour of speaking to James Michel, the former president of the Seychelles, about the importance of the ocean for the people who live on what might seem to us like small islands, but are actually big ocean states. Islands have changed dramatically over the last few hundred years since human beings have been moving around. We've seen some very small islands, for example, in the Solomon Islands completely disappear. I want people to know how important they are, how unique they are, and we can take positive action to really make a difference. The tourist brochures are pretty clear about what we should expect from a remote tropical island. Bright blue water, white sand, some exotic shells and the odd coconut tree. But the reality is usually a little bit more complicated. So we need to begin at the beginning. Why are these islands there at all? We know that most of Earth's landmass is made up of huge continents that wander Earth over geological time. But the little islands we're talking about today aren't directly connected to the continents. Their story starts elsewhere and their origin really matters for what lives on them. This is something that scientists from the Bertarelli Foundation's Marine Science Programme are studying. And the reason it's important is that the processes that formed the islands originally are still operating today. They're not static and just finished. They exist because they're dynamic, the result of a beautiful dance between biology and geology. And understanding that choreography is critical if we want to foresee how they'll respond to a changing world. Ines Langer is a researcher from the University of Exeter who visited the Chagos Archipelago earlier this year and is part of a team who want to know what these islands are made of. So I'm on this beautiful white sand beach framed by turquoise water on the one side and coconut trees on the other. I'm here today to take some sand samples because we want to find out what exactly these islands are made of. I'm just going to take some surface sediment. So most of the time during this trip I will not hang around on islands but I will do diving surveys to measure every coral and other substrates on the reef. So underwater I take photographs of a coral colony from all angles, 30 to 40 pics usually, and then on the computer I stitch them together to form a 3D model. I can compare this model to one I created of the same colony a year earlier, so I can see where and how much it grew. It's quite neat and I don't have to harm the corals to do it. I just have to be very good at finding them again, which is sometimes difficult. So in a nutshell, a look at all these organisms that produce our road reef structure and are responsible not only to provide habitat for many, many more species on the reef, but also actually build whole islands, uh, such as where I'm at now. Of course, that takes a few thousand years, it's not done overnight. 
But how cool is that? The reef builds the islands. Coral reefs play a huge role in oceanic island formation, but we need to dig a bit deeper into how exactly that works. I asked Professor Chris Perry from the University of Exeter how these islands form. In essence, they form on the, the surfaces of reefs or, or lagoons that have reached sea level. As reefs have built over time, they, they've grown, keeping pace with, with sea level rise. Sea level has stabilised over the last few thousand years, depending on where you are in the world. That has allowed the reefs then to grow to sea level. They then become constrained by that sea level position and they've expanded sideways, they've infilled their lagoons, and that has provided a, a relatively flat surface on which you can then start to accumulate sediments and, and other materials that are produced on the reef. That material is it's driven across the, the reef surface by wave activity, and it accumulates at some sort of point on, on the reef where the waves are converging, and that provides the initial little sort of sand body that will eventually evolve in, into an island. I love the idea of life basically making its own habitat like that. Because, you know, if you're in the middle of an ocean, where is sediment coming from? Because <laughs> you, you wouldn't yeah. think there'd be very much of it around. <laughs> no. So, again, this is, this is kind of one of the big differences. You know, if you, if you think about the sort of sediment that is supplied to coastal environments around the UK, most of that is brought from either cliff erosion or, or from rivers. In the middle of the open oceans, the only place you can really derive sediment is from the plants and animals that, that live on the reef. So in the Indian Ocean, it's mainly fine-grained coral sands, as well as the remains of plants, algae like Halamida, that are really important. So when these things either die, they either leave their skeletons, if the skeletons fall, fall into the sediment reservoir, if you like, and then can be potentially transported to an island, or you can have lots of other organisms that break down the coral skeleton. And in the Indian Ocean, parrotfish are really important, produce a huge amount of the, the material that, that has built islands in, in that region. From some of the stuff we did in the Maldives, we estimated that about 80% of the island sediment was derived from, from parrotfish. The parrotfish are great. I mean, I've spent um, a lot of time working on coral reefs and they're really brightly coloured fish. They're really noisy because they're so they've got these big sort of teeth at the front which is not what you expect on a fish and they're kind of scraping away at the coral and then sometime later they swim past you and then they sort of poo out white sediments and that's what you're talking about right it's it's gone through a parrotfish exactly they continuously or semi-continuously graze on on the, the surfaces of dead corals so they take that coral material in they grind it and they digest it and what comes out the other end is a mixture of sort of sediment material, which largely is ground up coral material that can contribute to, to island building. It is a great uh, example of that phrase that one man's waste is another man's riches or something, that, that it is literally <laughs> the waste of the parrotfish that can build a whole island. So never underestimate poo. That is the message there. Um, so... We, we know, though, I mean, most of the time when we hear about corals now, sadly, it's because the corals are not doing very well. Are there also problems with how the islands are maintained over time if the corals die off? Well, you know, what's fairly clear is it changes in the productivity on the reefs around islands that will almost inevitably have consequences for, for island building going forwards. Now, in the short term, there can actually be benefits 
for example, when corals die. We've seen in, in for example, parts of the southern Maldives, big increases in the, the abundance and the size of parrotfish populations after the, the recent 2016 uh, bleaching event. The larder was opened, the fish fed on that material, they've grown in size and they're probably at the moment producing much more sediment on those reefs than they were in the past. But So that's quite an important point then, That I mean an interesting point, that even though mo- a lot of, you know, the corals themselves died off and that gets rid of some biodiversity, because it's the specifically algae can then grow and algae is food for parrotfish, you then get more parrotfish kind of filling the gap. You do, and, and but it's probably a very short-term response. That is only really a long-term sustainable kind of process if you then have active, healthy recovery of the reefs. Otherwise, the habitat on which the, the parrotfish depend is progressively being broken down, and you'll then, at some point in the relatively near future, probably see those populations declining back down. The other kind of big issue is if, the, if coral cover is, is progressively reduced the reefs lose their ability to continue to keep pace with with sea level rise and and that will then open up the the, the possibility of increased rates of of island erosion and reworking of the reef surface so these processes if if the corals are not doing so well if you know if they're not being built so well that obviously affects the the coral itself and the ecosystem that lives around it but how does it affect the island that the coral is next to in, in essence what happens is that we'll start to see the position potentially of the island on on the reef platform may well start to shift and move around and that of course has you know massive implications if you're living on those islands that's hugely important um, who wants to live on a, on a body of land that, that's moving around and, and, and is increasingly unstable? But it also, of course, has implications for groundwater reserves. That, in turn, has implications for, for vegetation cover, agricultural potential, and therefore, all, you know, for seabirds, turtles, uh, all sorts of other organisms that depend on those ecosystems. So in a warming world with less biodiversity, because humans have sort of screwed everything up, these reef islands, are they going to stop forming? I mean, is there a risk here that this is a, a structure which only exists when there's one particular state? And, and if the climate warms, perhaps we won't get these islands anymore. Is that too dramatic? I don't think it is too dramatic necessarily, actually. If we continue down the path that we're on at the moment, poorly regulated you know, greenhouse gas emissions, increasing warming, all of the models tell us that the, the, the bleaching frequency and intensity is going to increase rapidly over the next few decades, getting to the point where we may see the onset of annual bleaching. That provides no time for reef recovery. You lose both the production, the supply side of the system, but you're also losing the ability of the reefs to maintain a position relatively close to sea level. That, that window uh, of water depth increases and that will then have negative consequences for the islands. And we've seen some very small islands, for example, in the Solomon Islands, completely disappear. I don't want to see these landforms disappear. I want people to know how important they are, how unique they are. And we can take positive actions to, to try to rein in the rates of change and, and really make a difference. Professor Chris Perry from the University of Exeter. And you can find out more about Chris's work on the Bertarelli Foundation's website, marine.science. Our remote islands might have taken thousands of years to form, although that still makes them relative youngsters on a very old planet. But at what point do animals and plants turn up and take up permanent residence? Islands have very high levels of endemic species. Those are plants and animals that aren't found anywhere else. This isn't a coincidence. 
small, isolated islands have very few ecological niches and they can be really harsh places to survive in. So evolution by natural selection can get to work really quickly and species evolve to have unique characteristics not seen anywhere else. Quite often, the first larger animals to take up island residence are reptiles and birds, so they can end up in the top predator role that's usually filled by a mammal on the continents. But they're unlikely to arrive perfectly adapted to island life, so you can get some dramatic new variations on the theme, perhaps giant tortoises or dwarf elephants. But island species are disappearing more rapidly than species anywhere else in the world. Small islands can only support simple ecosystems with a relatively low number of species and a relatively small number of links in the ecosystem. Any new intruders can really rock that boat and cause big problems for the earlier inhabitants. It was islands that led Darwin to come up with the theory of evolution, but it was also on an island in 1662 that humans saw the last dodo and realised that they had caused its extinction. But all of this is only true because, until humans came along with ships, it was really rare for anything new to arrive on a remote island at all. Professor Carl Jones is the chief scientist at the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, and he's spent his life protecting endangered species on the islands of Mauritius. To start with, I asked him about how plants and animals actually get to remote islands in the first place. Well, this is one of those issues that people have been debating for years. And it seems that one of the most important ways of getting there, if you can't fly, is on rafts of vegetation. And years ago, when people first started to think about this, and people said, well, they must drift there on a, a tree trunk or something. And people said, you're so stupid. How can you go across thousands of miles like that? And then people started to collect observations of floating mats of vegetation, looking at whole trees that drift across the seas. And it does happen. When animals arrive, you know, the first ones to arrive, they've got the run of an island to themselves. So say a tortoise, you know, rocks up on an island. How is it likely to evolve in order to adapt to life on the island? Well, they adapt to the vegetation that is there. And of course, most tortoises are grazing animals and so they'll feed on the grasses and the small herbaceous plants and over time of course they'll become adapted to those plants and you'll also get co-evolution and that some of the plants will develop adaptations for avoiding being grazed by tortoises or will respond to grazing by tortoises. Evolution works in all sorts of different directions with, with sort of co-evolution between species adapting to each other and of course, over time, that adaptation becomes more and more complex. I guess before humans came along, uh, in general, you know, these things would happen very slowly, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps every thousand years or a few hundred years. But in general, evolution would produce a balance. You can imagine a fairly stable system evolving. And then humans come along and they probably bring with them in their ballast tanks or on their ships or deliberately, um, invasive species. So how does all of that, you know, how does that affect an island? Even the most pristine islands that are left have some species there that have been brought by man. So invasive species are a real problem. Many, many species have become extinct and a lot are critically endangered because of invasive species. And the worst ones are 
rats and cats and goats and pigs. And the big problem is, is that on islands, there are very often few predators. And so the animals are very naive. And along comes a pussycat and there's all these flightless birds or reptiles. And of course, they get they get eaten. And I guess if you've got a small island, there actually aren't that many of a, a species to start with. So, you know, if a cat goes around and over a year might kill a few hundred, perhaps perhaps that's all there were. How has the work you've done helped in all of this? I started work on critically endangered birds, the Mauritius kestrel, the pink pigeon, the Mauritius parakeet, and several other species. And we were able to breed some of these species in captivity, and then subsequently release them back into the wild to boost the numbers. And also to start restoring the vegetation. And we've seen a lot of our bird species increase. I spent a lot of time working with the captive birds, but also I spent a huge amount of time in the forest, studying the wild birds, trying to understand their, their needs, and trying to understand what their problems were. And over time, you become quite sort of intuitive. Yes, you collect information in a very systematic way, like an objective scientist, but you also get to know the, the animals and you develop a sort of empathy for them. And there are five species of birds that at one stage or other, at the lowest, they went down to populations of, of a dozen or less that we have been able to increase in number. And one of the species, Mauritius kestrel, that declined to just four known individuals. And it's believed that all the birds are derived from just one breeding pair. And we now have a population of several hundred. And that has come through the, you know, a really severe genetic bottleneck with relatively few problems. So can you just learn from what's there now? Or can you look at perhaps the history of these species and look at what they might have needed to thrive in the past? Well, you have to, you have to do both of those things because islands have changed dramatically over the last few hundred years since human beings have been moving around and colonising these islands. I looked at all the historic accounts. So I started to think about, well, the tortoises have gone. And we mentioned earlier on about how there'd been co-evolution between the plants and the tortoises. So I thought, well, can we bring back another species of tortoise to fulfill the role of the extinct Mauritian tortoises? And so I started to point out to people, I said, well, look, the plants need tortoises. We put some Aldabra giant tortoises on small offshore islands, and we found that they would feed on fallen fruit. The seeds would pass through the gut of the tortoise, and then the seeds would start germinating. And so we started seeing the forest coming back to life slowly. And we could see the tortoises were also grazing in other areas, opening up areas, and some of the rare grasses and herbaceous plants have started to come back. We are trying to restore several hundred years of destruction. Islands are giving us the answers about how the planet works, but extinction and evolution, but also conservation. We are learning on islands to be able to restore ecosystems, rebuild ecosystems, save what biodiversity is there. On islands, we have the world's rarest species, and we have learned how to save them. 
So all species are savable, but we have to learn the lessons from Ireland. Professor Carl Jones from the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust. We're all inhabitants of an ocean planet, and I make no apology for repeating that a lot. But the consequence is that we're all directly connected to the global ocean. But that connection is most immediate for the people who live on small, isolated oceanic islands. The ocean that surrounds them is a deep part of their identity, a joy, a resource, a threat, sometimes a barrier, but more often a link to what lies across the water. Island peoples are seeing the ocean change at first hand. The problems we hear about in the news, marine pollution, sea level rise, ocean acidification and overfishing, these are not theoretical problems for island inhabitants. They're right on their doorstep. For example, the Seychelles in the Indian Ocean has a landmass of 452 square kilometres, but a sea surface area of just over 1.3 million square kilometres. So that means that it's got nearly 3,000 more ocean than land. I spoke with former president James Michel, who explained how the ocean is intertwined with life in the Seychelles. The Seychelles is part of a group of countries traditionally called the small island developing states. But in fact, we are big ocean states. We have a deep connection with the ocean. We derive our food, identity, and traditions from our relationship with the ocean. The ocean remains our bloodline, in fact. Not only in its economic sense, but much deeper. It is leisure, it is pleasure, it is livelihood, it is wealth. I have always been close to the sea. My childhood was spent on the beaches and playing little boats made of coconut husks and sails of tamaka leaves. And of course, the small forests that lie behind. Even today, if I cannot see the sea where I am, I feel claustrophobic. Our very existence depends on it. Well, let's talk a little bit about the future because we know that climate change is a serious problem and that island nations are some of the first countries to be, to be very severely affected. So just tell us a little bit about how climate change is already affecting the Seychelles. Well, the low-level islands are being hugely affected by rising sea levels. To us islanders, it threatens our own existence as nations, as people. It is the big, rich nations that pollute more. And yet, we are the first to suffer. We experience fish migration. And with global warming and the warming waters, some fish go deeper. Coral bleaching, coastal erosion, change of weather patterns, drought, it affects fishing, tourism. It's something that the Seychellois are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. Just give us a sense of the urgency. Are these problems that are affecting livelihoods now, or is it that you can see problems in the next few years? Where are the Seychelles on that path? It is mostly the coastal regions that will be affected. And definitely, most of the infrastructure that we have are located along the coast uh, around the main island. But uh, the low-lying islands definitely uh, will be more affected and subsequently, if sea level rise continue, they will suffer the fate of being submerged. In some places, roads are 
starting to be washed away by the sea. The beach that I used to play on when I was uh, small is no longer there. It is gone, it's reached the road. If something is not done urgently to stop and reverse the global warming, it's going to be catastrophic. On the question of tourism, there's a really delicate balancing act here because especially for places like the Seychelles, you know, when tourists come, they bring economic opportunities for your population, they bring money, but also they want to see the ocean, which is great, but they also risk damaging it. So how do you manage that balance between perhaps wanting tourists to come to share the ocean with them, to, you know, have trade, but then not to damage the thing that everyone values so much? Well, there is no reason why the two cannot coexist. It brings the ocean and the economy together in a new framework, and the two in unity, but underpinned by the principle of sustainability, the sustainable use of the ocean to meet human needs. When I was uh, president, I had a policy of tourism development on the land itself. We have an island which is called uh, a living laboratory because it's uh, been hardly touched by, by human activity. We allowed one small hotel there. So that hotel, the revenue that it gets from uh, its, uh, its activities, part of it is used to maintain the island itself and its ecosystem. The environment benefit and the hotel benefit. But as I said earlier, we have to understand the fragility of the ocean and also to continue to ensure that we remain good custodians of our ocean heritage. And I hope that my successors will continue to do that. Now, as your time as president, you were a real champion for ocean issues. And of course, you attended many big meetings for world leaders. And I always think the interesting thing about those meetings is the, the very many different perspectives. And I was wondering about your perspective as a, as a leader of a, a big ocean state. What was your voice saying that other voices were not? Well, as islanders, we are all the children of the ocean. We all share the same challenges, the same fate, and the same destiny. But the essence is for leaders to have the political will to be bold, to make bold decisions. Yes, it has been a struggle, but it is not over. The movement is gathering momentum. More governments are taking action. They are pledging to meet the Paris commitments. However, they must honor these commitments. But there is hope. I believe in humanity. In 2015, under my presidency, Seychelles made a gift to humanity of 30% of its marine space for protection. So today, I call on all island and coastal states to do the same. I call for an international agreement to protect 30% at least of the high seas. I wish to see fishing as well as all other resources of the sea used sustainably. The answer to the survival of our planet, the survival of life itself, no one will come and save us if we destroy ourselves. The Hawaiians have a saying, 
A canoe is an island and an island is a canoe. The meaning of that phrase goes pretty deep, but the gist is that the sort of teamwork you need to survive in a canoe at sea, cooperation, respect for each other, good observation skills, shared vulnerability, those things are also what you need to survive on a small island in the middle of the ocean. You can't afford to waste things or be destructive if you want to survive because what's on that island is all that you've got. This perspective, it's about how to treat people as well as how to treat your resources. But I think there's a very natural extension to that thought because Earth itself is a canoe. It's our island in space, incredibly rich, but it does have limits. And the lessons of how to thrive on planet Earth are the lessons of how to thrive on an island. And so we need to pay attention to Earth's remote oceanic islands, partly because we need to look after them, of course, but mostly because they can help us look after ourselves. Thank you to Professor Chris Perry, Professor Carl Jones, Ines Langer and James Michel. Next time on Ocean Matters, we'll be meeting some of the most impressive inhabitants of the ocean, the sharks. These animals have so many amazing adaptations to their watery world. They really are masters of ocean life. But like so many other species, they're in trouble. And we'll be meeting the scientists who are working to understand and protect them. I'm Helen Chersky, and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. If you've got a moment, please do leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now so you never miss an episode. <laughs>